coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. And I remember this intense pain in my belly, almost like I've gone to the bathroom on myself, that mm. weird feeling. But then suddenly I could hear people talking from 100 meters away. I could, you know, I was looking, I felt like I had the vision of a hawk uh, uh, and this insane amount of strength just came to me. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Mark. Now, I don't think there's anything better than waking up feeling super rested, relaxed, and energized. And when we get high-quality sleep, this is the norm. But without it, our simple day-to-day -day tasks can feel impossible and our health suffers. And that's why I'm always looking for ways to upgrade my sleep routine. And the bamboo sheet set from Cozy Earth is my new favorite way to get an amazing night's rest. Now, you might be surprised to learn that many types of bedding out there contain toxins that can off-gas into the air and absorb into your skin. I mean, do you want to sleep on formaldehyde? I don't either. So I love knowing that Cozy Earth products are certified to be free of harmful chemicals. Sleep actually impacts every part of your health. It helps us maintain a healthy weight by balancing hormones and blood sugar. It provides time to detox our brains and lets our muscles and organs rest and repair. But so many of us don't get enough sleep or the right quality sleep, and that doesn't allow the body to do all these important things. So better sleep is the cornerstone of better health, and it's something we all have the power to work on. Now, I know nice bedding can feel like a big investment, so Cozy Earth makes it super easy to try out their products with a 30-day free trial and a 10-year warranty. Plus, right now, they're offering their best sale price ever with 40% off. Just go to CozyEarth.com and use the code MARK40 at checkout. That's CozyEarth.com, C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H.com with the code MARK40, and you'll check out and get the discount. I know you're going to love these sheets as much as I do. One of the most important tools I have for helping my patients optimize their health is testing. And that is why I love what Rupa Health is doing. Functional medicine testing can require placing orders with lots of different labs and it can kind of get really complicated for doctors and their patients to easily access results and keep track of everything. But Rupa Health has totally streamlined that process. Looking at hormones, organic acids, nutrient levels, inflammatory factors, gut bacteria, and so many other internal variables can help us find the most effective path to health and healing. I'm really excited about that now, and I can finally take advantage of these tests without the hassle of the confusion of going through so many multiple labs. Rupa Health is the place for functional medicine practitioners to access more than two thousand specialty lab tests from over 20 labs like Dutch, Vibrant America, Genova, Great Plains, and more. It's 90% faster, letting you simplify the process of getting you the functional tests that you need and giving you more time to focus on your patients. This is really a much-needed option in the functional medicine space, and it means better service for you and your patients. You can check it out with a free live demo with a Q&A or create an account at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman. That's pharmacy with an F, a place for conversations that matter. And if you ever wondered what you can do about dealing with the crisis of climate change, this is going to be an interesting podcast for you because we have a very unusual guest today who is a CEO of a very large company that's creating solutions in the space where many solutions have not existed and gives us an opportunity to talk about why it's so important to change how we do business in order to solve the climate crisis. Uh, and our guest today is a good friend of mine, uh, Hakan Bulgarlu, who's from Turkey, who uh, is of both Turkish and Norwegian origin. Uh, and he learned the trade of business at the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, which is quite a place to learn <laughs> business. <laughs> We're yeah. gonna hear that story. He also ha ha has uh, become quite a leader in the field of business innovations that drive solutions for climate change, as opposed to businesses that drive climate change, which is mostly what we see in the world today. And he's uh, a global business leader. He's um, a CEO of a company called Arth Archelec, which is a home appliances manufacturer that operates in 150 countries. He's a thought leader on sustainable and purpose-driven businesses. And in order to raise awareness for climate change, because I don't think people really listen to people unless they've done something crazy. He climbed Mount Everest in 2019 after climbing a number of other mountains around the world. And he's written a book about it called A Mountain to Climb, which is a fabulous book, uh, an inspiring story that talks about his vision of how we can begin to solve the climate crisis and and about his journey to Mount Everest. So welcome to the podcast, Akan. 
Thank you, Mark. It's uh, such an honor to be here. You know, it's been a long journey for me writing the book Everest. Again, as you said, uh, you know, people often ask me why I climbed. And quite literally, it was I had difficulty getting people to listen to me when I was talking about the climate and, you know, the crisis that Earth is in. And um, I thought, what could I do that would get people's attention? And literally, Everest did happen. You know, when I spoke, people would look at their phones for every five minutes or so, start yeah. yawning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I start talking about Everest, everything stops. You know, yeah. everyone's fully focused. But uh, but yeah, the whole mission was to to raise awareness and then talk about the solutions, as you as you phrase it. But I I love the introduction phrase. You said uh, as a business uh, or a business leader, we were trying to create solutions to the problem as opposed to feeding the problem. And yeah. uh, I think that. That really describes everything in one sentence. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation. We're going to get into the Mount Everest story in a minute and your Grand Bazaar origins yeah, as I, a business leader. I thought you might forget <laughs> that one. But, okay, great. But, you know, to me, it's so striking what you're doing because, you know, there are, there are narratives that are emerging in business um, around being a positive impact on creating climate solutions, but very few companies are actually doing the work. And and that is because a lot of the motives that drive businesses are shareholder value and profit. And, and yet you found a way within that framework to actually drive the right types of solutions. So what, what, what kind of led you to kind of reimagine what you were doing or what uh, led you to sort of first realize that this was something that you as a business leader and CEO could actually impact? Well, um, I realized early on that it actually makes good business sense as well. Uh, if you think of appliances and you have 14 brands, they're pretty much the same. Uh, it's a commoditizing industry. Uh, you know, you go into a shop, there's endless choice. It's just price differences, option differences. But if you were presented with one that is completely sustainable, it's coming from a carbon neutral uh, company that's, you know, recycling its appliances, that has the most energy efficient appliances, naturally consumers are tending to choose those now because there is this great anxiety out there. Uh, but for me, uh, the big realization came actually through the preparation uh, for the expedition to Everest because mm. it was eight months of intense planning, learning, obviously physical, mental uh, preparation. Uh, but in that process, we also uh, were quite prolific with uh, social media letting people know every day what is happening to the planet and what they can do. And the initial intent there was to draw attention to the melting glaciers. Nobody mm. talks about the glaciers. Well, some people do, yeah. but not many know about what's happening. Yeah. And uh, if you think of this whole uh, geography from China, Pakistan, the whole of the ASEAN region, uh, essentially India, Bangladesh, yeah. uh, they depend on glacial water coming from Himakal Pradesh, the Himalayas. And 50% of those glaciers are gone. 50%. are gone. This is science. Right? melted in the last this. decades? Uh, this, this is in the past 50, 60 years. Wow. Uh, but the acceleration, of course, is in the past 10 years. We've had seven of the warmest uh, years in the past 100 years have been, or ever actually recorded, has been in the past 10 years. And um, what's, what's happening is, you see, when you look at the Syrian problem, for example, uh, 5 million refugees. You got 1 million in Europe. You, governments changed in Europe because there was 1 million refugees. I mean, Hungary got 10 or something and yeah. ended up with Orban, right? Yeah. So you look at Turkey with 4 million refugees. It's real. And that was caused by water. Uh, there was no, you know, water simply ran out and people in the countryside moved to the cities and that usually causes war. Uh, in the war. Hima war, yeah. yeah. And if you look at uh, uh, what's going to happen in the whole basin where these people depend on Himalayan glacial melt, you're talking about 2 billion people moving onto other people's land. So Not a million, 2 billion. Not a million, 2 billion, <laughs> 2 billion. And they That's depend not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Everyone thinks it's a monsoon. The monsoon comes, it runs off. It's actually the glacial water they depend on. And scientists say this varies, that the, the rest of the ice will disappear in the next 30, 50 years. Um, but uh, I, I want to talk about solutions as well. And the solution to that, of course, is, uh, you know, stopping putting carbon in the atmosphere, decarbonizing, mm. because that's what's causing uh, the melt. Now, I, I got here because uh, that was part of the reason I, I, I climbed Everest. But in that preparation phase, I, uh, you know, with the videos I was producing, trying to help people uh, along the way of what they can do differently every day to impact. Mm. And there are so many things. They're very simple. But people started following what I was doing because they were curious. Why is this guy doing this? He's got three young children. Yeah. He's CEO of one of the biggest companies, you know, 
globally in the appliance industry. Yeah. Uh, you know, it looks like a great job, although it's quite problematic. Why would you difficult. put yourself at risk? Why would you put yourself at risk? It doesn't make any sense. So people got curious and started following, and they started really eating up the sustainability I was actually putting out there, mm. the methodology behind it. And I saw that. And then the methodology through, behind what your company was doing to solve the problem. Well, that, but also also what they could do every day, you know, eat less meat, uh, choose, you know, turn the lights off and very simple, electrify everything. There's so many solutions that we in our lives uh, can adapt and implement, which will have an impact at scale. And um, uh, what happened was unexpectedly when I came back from Everest is inadvertently would really strengthen the purpose of the company. Mm. What happened is everybody through the risk taking I had done and maybe through the awareness of the preparation process, everybody started believing that this was really what we need to do. Mm. And our vision statement, our mission, everything reflects that. So an engineer in every corner of the company started thinking, how can I do what I'm doing more sustainably? Lose, use less plastic or use more recycled plastic, uh, conserve water, energy. What technology can I work on that will reduce the consumption of energy, hence reduce the carbon emissions? It snowballed, and mm. the company suddenly became a purposeful business. Mm. I mean, of course, this is a journey. When I say suddenly, yeah. I mean I realized it at that moment. Um, and it's a team effort. Uh, I'm what, very, was your, very proud. what was your aha moment that got you to go, oh, I need to change what we're doing as a company? The aha moment uh, was when I took my children. I'm a sailor. I love sailing, and I've lived in Hong Kong for many years. Uh, sailed around Asia quite a lot. But in 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 Thailand, there was this particular Maya Beach. Everybody knows about it because of the movie. I love that beach, you know. And I'd stop by. I took my children. Uh, to was share that from the, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes, beach? it is. It is. It is. <laughs> and you know, they had to shut it down for a year or two years or something. Then COVID came along, so it's been stayed shut for four years. So hopefully now it looks better. But I took my children there over a Christmas vacation, and uh, it was shocking. Uh, I'd prepped the children saying, you know, we're going to find treasure in a cave. It's really special. This is one of my most beautiful places. We swam ashore, and I was knee-deep in plastic. Knee-deep in plastic. Knee-deep in plastic. I was carrying my children. They were small. And my daughter looked up, to, looked up at me and said, why? And I couldn't answer. I just couldn't answer. Why? For what? And I decided that, you know, that wasn't going to happen again. Uh, when I'm, you know, nice and mature, a little bit older, <laughs> uh, but young, because I follow what you uh, preach, <laughs> uh, I will look my. I want to be able to look my children in the eye and say, I did everything possible, everything possible I could do, I did, and that includes with the business platform. Yeah, so that that was the aha moment, the real aha moment, and. Uh, until that moment, I really thought that it would take a huge amount of capital and resources to transform the business, but uh, it's not the case. There are so many low-hanging fruit, uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I think it's interesting because there are so many business leaders out there who think that it takes a massive amount of money and effort to do this, but uh, an engineer came up with a solution uh, and something that I'm very proud of now because... Uh, we started using, instead of engineering plastics to harden the tubs of the washing machines, yeah. he started using, he figured out we could use discarded pet water bottles. And we've used tens of millions, of, hundreds of millions of water bottles in our washing like machine drums. Plastic water bottles. Plastic water bottles that are discarded, that are floating around the sea. So we collect them, we buy them, we have them turned into pellets and we use them in the in the drums. And the end result was that actually the material cost was less than it would, what it would have been and the strength was good enough, which meant that we were making money by saving money. Profitable, yeah. yeah. And there's so many things that are profitable. Mm -hmm. So many simple things people don't think about, uh, like uh, calibrating all the equipment on production lines. The amount of energy you save is incredible. Uh, that, the list is so long, I won't go into too many details. No, it's fascinating because you know most, most businesses, I think, have the view that if we start to invest in this way, it's going to cost us money. Yeah. Um, and and what's what's really not built into the price of goods is the true cost of the goods and exactly. its impact to the environment, to climate, to human health. And one of the things you've done, and I, I sort of really want to sort of highlight this, is is you figured out a way to deal with one of the big problems with washing machines, which is microplastics getting in our water supply, polluting the oceans. I mean, every pretty much every fish you eat is full of microplastics yeah, yeah. and that affects our human health. And, and you know, I, I always joke that if we were food, if humans were food, we would not be safe to eat because of how <laughs> polluted we are. <laughs> yeah. And you, you figured out a way to solve that. Can you talk a little bit about so the microplastics issue and 
how it came to your attention and why you care about it and what you've done to fix it. Well, uh, I've always cared about the oceans. I mean, that became pretty clear with uh, what we the were beach. speaking about <laughs> yeah, the, at the beach. Um, the idea was actually uh, uh, hatched here in uh, Kaplanka, where we are today. Essentially, and by the way, everybody listening, you might hear birds in the background. We're, we're on the coast of Turkey, mm-hmm. overlooking the ocean, and there's a bird nest right outside where we're doing the podcast. So you might hear the birds, but that's yeah. okay. I call them Mark's babies. <laughs> <laughs> They're little baby birds. They're screaming all day. Feed me, feed me. <laughs> um, what's happening is, uh, and uh, you know, these companies are, are trying to do something about it, but they're the big offenders. It's synthetic yarn producers. So mm-hmm. basically, most of what we wear today is made from synthetic yarn, which is made from petrol. And that synthetic yarn, when it's converted into fast fashion, which is designed for you to discard every couple of months, it just falls apart every time you wash it. It disintegrates a bit more. It's scary, but um, just, uh, you know, if you wash a jumper that's made of synthetic yarn, just one jumper, you're dropping millions of pieces mm. and literally measurable in grams wow. of microfibers that are so small there's no municipality that can filter that. That all goes into the waterways and it goes into the oceans. And it's been doing this as long as we've been, you know, producing synthetic yarn. Industrial, polyester. Which is polyester. <laughs> plastic. Again, we get back to plastic. What was that um, movie, The Graduate, where, you know, the, the, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman was like, the future is plastic, Yeah, right? exactly. A, it was on the cover of uh, House magazine or something, yeah. I remember. What that means is we don't know the amount of plastic in the oceans. And uh, we've done, we've worked with a lot of researchers in universities. Fish taken from the Arctic, it doesn't matter where you take the samples from, they're contaminated with microfibers. Mm-hmm. The, the terrible uh, detail behind that is these plastic molecules actually attract chemicals. You know, there's more than 80,000 man-made chemicals that are floating around as well. And somehow these molecules bind to those chemicals. They, they get ingested by the fish and they go into the flesh of the fish. And then yeah. we eat this. Uh, it's a disaster, essentially. And, uh, and it's a health crisis that's happening. And uh, is the biggest source of this basically our clothes? It's our clothes, yeah. It's our clothes. So, I mean, there are so many sources, but clothes are a very big source of it. This is not a problem of the appliance industry, right? I didn't mention the washing machine has no blame in this. But uh, we sat down and we said, how can we solve this problem? We know it's not our problem. Can we create a machine that can filter this out? And we came up with a filter, many patents, um, after two years of research, that filters out you know, 90, more than 95% of, uh, of the filters. And then the filter itself is recyclable. It's a closed box because if you go and wash it and then put it back, it doesn't work. It all goes, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the system's there. Then we open source the technology and we challenged all our competitors to use it. I'm very happy to say that France is regulated now. California is regulated. Soon, every washing machine you buy will have to be fitted with one of these filters. Now, initially, of course, people reacted in the company saying, wait a minute, this is our IP. We've worked really hard yeah. to develop. Why don't we make money from this? And, and, and I, I felt that, uh, and, and actually the, the whole leadership team felt that if we differentiate ourselves as, as a company that's truly doing this for, for the good of the environment, yeah. and we're sharing the technology, not because uh, we think we can't make a commercial advantage out of it, but because we think we should, it should be universal everywhere, yeah. that we will get more credit for this. And, 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 and we have. And uh, well, now this very, washing machine side. Very, anyway. very uh, enlightened view, because I don't yeah. think most CEOs would go, let's give away our intellectual property, which we could make millions or billions of dollars on, yeah. but it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You need to speed this up and we need to do everything we can. It's, it's all out. And, I, and you know, uh, companies that don't transform won't be around, Mark. It's not like, uh, let me see if I can do it in five years, 10 years. Companies that don't transform now in this way are simply just not going to be around because consumers are going to vote with their money, right? Uh, people are scared, they're anxious. And as the symptoms get worse, the climate gets warmer, the seas get dirtier, we get sicker, you know, people's reactions will intensify. So how, how do you engage with other CEOs? Do they listen to you? Do they think you're uh, kind of a, a nut job and you should just, you know, you're they, gonna um, lose all your shareholder value and stock prices are gonna crash? Yeah, <laughs> I had a lot of, I had a lot of that. I mean, uh, <laughs> I was called, uh, I, when I, I was called an industrial anarchist, you know. Ah, uh, oh God, that I was love a good that. One. And another one is, of course, I'm always pushing for regulation everywhere uh, because government regulation is absolutely necessary to solve this problem. And that's also very, you know, it, it doesn't come intuitively to businesses or business leaders. They're, when there's regulation, they always put their hands up and say, no, 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 please no. Mm. Uh, 
um, I, I did not, I was not very welcomed, but now I think the world has changed. And uh, at Glasgow, that was one of the biggest positive messages I can give you. At, at COP26, there was a big positive moment for me at Glasgow mm. <laughs> because for the first time I saw businesses were ready to do something about it. And it's simple because they smelled profit, right? They saw that if you differentiate yourself and you change quickly, yeah. you're going to get an advantage. Yeah. And so CEOs are very excited now. The tune has changed. I'm part of the CEO Alliance at the World Economic Forum. And I see, you know, there's two types of CEOs. One uh, is the one who gets the briefing from their sustainability team and just reads what they're given. And you can immediately tell them apart. They're basically the breed that says, this is not my problem. Uh, you know, I'm going to retire in five years anyway, and the next guy can deal with it. Yeah. And, and, and But that group will increasingly have a, a tough time. And then there's a group which says, this is going to become a business advantage and they, they really start getting into it. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful. I see businesses transforming everywhere. It just has, has to happen faster. Yeah, that's so exciting. Well, I want to loop back because, you know, you clearly have made some very impressive changes in your operations that drive climate solutions that we can all take advantage of, whether it's the yeah. microplastic filters yeah. or recycled plastics as part of the construction of washing machines yeah. or the improvement in energy efficiency. So you're reducing both the energy inputs to actually create the appliances and you're also improving the post-purchase um, energy use, use yeah. and you're also reducing microplastics so you're, and yeah. you're also recycling the machines yeah. after. Yeah. So you get yeah. to, when you throw away your washing machine or your refrigerator or your stove, yeah. it doesn't just go in a dump, right? Well, unfortunately, it does in most of the world. And uh, this is what we found. So one of the things we have to do very quickly is energy efficiency. Uh, that, you know, is it true? Like, I just interrupt for a sec, but I remember like, I had a fridge in my house. It was an old fridge. It was kind of broken. I had to throw it out. Like, I had to take it to the dump. And I'm like, I don't want to take yeah. it to the dump, but I don't know where else to put it. You know? Yeah, this is a, uh, it's a tragedy because uh, there's so many uh, areas of waste around that. It's it's just crazy. But uh, what we did is, well, fir first thing we need to do is focus on energy efficiency. That means the fridge you buy today consumes less than half the energy of a fridge or maybe even 80% less energy than a fridge you bought 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, you should use a fridge for more than 10 years. I agree with that, right? It should be durable. It should be repairable. But at the moment, the biggest urgency is to change it because the energy you're consuming is causing carbon emissions, mm. right? And depending on where on the where in the world you are, really bad, uh, you know, a lot of emissions. So, um, uh, first mission is to do that. But when we started doing that, you know, giving starting campaigns, giving discounts to customers to buy higher energy efficient appliances, uh, we couldn't find a place to re recycle the old ones. So yeah. we had to build one ourselves. We built this Mad Max-like facility, you know, 50 meters high, that just basically chews up appliances. And we're brand agnostic. I think we've recycled more than a million and a half uh, today. And what that does is because you use the recycled materials. Really? So you don't, you don't just take your own appliances back. You'll take no, anybody's. I'll, we'll take anybody's. Uh, General we'll, Electric or refrigerator, any, refrigerator anyone, or anything. Anyone. And then we will... Uh, use some of that recycled material ourselves, sell it or move it on to other industries, uh, the rest. But there's another saving there because by not using virgin materials, you're actually saving the emissions caused by the energy used when that material is being produced. Yeah. Uh, and again, the more energy efficient appliance in the consumer's home is consuming less, so causing less emissions. I mean, what people need to do really is to really check the energy rating on the appliances they're buying. This mm. is critical. And you know, it's, on the, it's on the It's on the appliance. appliance it's not right. difficult. And it's regulated everywhere. Um, uh, you know, people are, th everybody's looking for rocket science. Like we're looking for hydrogen. We're looking for, you know, trying to, how are we going to solve this crazy problem? Carbon so capture technologies. Yeah. And, and you right. know, we're spending billions and billions of dollars. Actually, all the technologies we need or which will have the biggest impact are here. The International Energy Agency, uh, Fatih Birol, a good friend who leads it, uh, calls it the first fuel. There are four groups of products, um, lighting, cooling and heating, uh, cooling and electric motors that consume 40% of all power. Uh, if, you, if you actually used all of our energy efficiency technologies available today in those um, four segments, you would, uh, you would solve basically the problem of shutting down 4,500, I think, coal-fired power plants, mm. 4,500 around the world. It's, and these technologies exist today. So energy efficiency has to be the first solution in this, uh, in this fight. That's so, that's so, so inspiring. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark. 
I always say I want it to be 120, but I really only want to do that as long as I'm feeling great and still able to do all the things I love. Aging well requires some mindfulness and intention, but that doesn't mean it has to be hard. As I've dug into the research on aging and health, one thing becomes super clear. We have to take care of our mitochondria. These are our cellular energy factories, and as we age and eat too much or sit at our desk too much or expose to toxins, our mitochondria deteriorate and our bodies suffer. I discovered this product called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition that specifically regenerates mitochondria and supports cellular energy production. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested pure form of natural gut metabolite called urolithin A. It comes from pomegranate. It's really cool, actually. <laughs> that clears damaged mitochondria away from our cells and supports the growth of new healthy mitochondria. We can't directly get urolithin A from foods because we need our gut bacteria to create it for us. And since most of us don't have a really healthy gut microbiome to actually get enough urolithin A out of food, MitoPure is a great solution. And right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my community 10% off MitoPure, which you can get in a capsule powder or protein blend at TimelineNutrition.com. That's TimelineNutrition.com, T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E.com, forward slash Dr. Hyman, D-R-H-Y-M-A-N. And use the code Dr. Hyman 10 to get the discount. I've been using it for almost a year now, and at 61, I feel stronger and more energized than ever. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm going to jump back a little bit about, sure. about how we sort of solve this problem at a, at a scale and some of the challenges in the business world. But I kind of want to kind of loop back to your beginnings <laughs> and uh, you know how you got to be you, because not there's not too many of you that I've met who... One haggled their way to business in the Grand Bazaar, climbed Mount Everest, and reimagined the way of doing business in ways that could have been disastrous for your yeah. Yeah. for your publicly traded company, yeah. but that you took that risk. And and you took that risk, you took the risk of climbing Mount Everest. So kind of what made you you? Was it was it <laughs> dealing with the <laughs> What was the magic sauce? I I don't know. I mean I'm I'm constantly I First of all, I don't think that highly of myself, but thank you. I <laughs> That's mean, okay, I, I do. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I try. I definitely try. Um, uh, but yeah, very early exposure maybe to nature. I mean, I always, I remember days when I was five or six, I'd go out with fishermen at four in the morning, uh, go fish, and then they would have me sell their catch in the market because a cute kid speaks languages, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'd take fish home <laughs> as pay. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and, you know, my parents, my grandparents would always be very proud of me, you know, that they, they instilled good self-confidence, I think. Yeah. But the bazaar is a different story. The bazaar, uh, it's an incredible place. I mean, you've been, there's yes. 20,000 stores. It's the world's first shopping mall. Yeah. Uh, it, it's probably the world's first, um, even though the Dutch in Amsterdam claim uh, responsibility for that, the first stock exchange because they were trading gold there. Oh, really? Uh, forever for, th you know, mm. hundreds and hundreds of years, thousand years at least. And, um, you know, the spice market, it's where all the spice moved from the Orient. So it's really the hub of trading. And there, uh, there's a system where you apprentice system, where you start at the door, you don't have to do anything, then you move in, then you can weigh the gold, then you can actually quote prices, you know, it's, you have to earn your way up. And I, I just, oh, so you weren't selling spices, you were selling gold. I was selling gold. I was, wow. I was working for a jeweler and uh, <laughs> I, I learned the real trade and, uh, okay. it wasn't just a little turmeric and, uh, yeah, yeah, uh no, frankincense. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was, it was gold chains and diamonds and that's uh, simple stuff actually, but, but, uh, uh, nice. And what I found is that if the customer trusts you, uh, meaning if you build trust with the person you're dealing with, mm. then they will actually prefer to buy from you, even if you're a little bit more expensive than the guy next door. Mm -hmm. Uh, and realizing that really is a big moment in my life because I've, I've treated everything in that way, uh, that the, the trust is not something you can break with a customer. Mm. And any business, whether you're selling a service or a product, it's a, it's a trust, it's a relationship built on trust. Yeah. And I try to apply that on all the businesses. But yeah, I worked in the bazaar. I remember my parents didn't want me to work there anymore because I was making so much more than my allowance that they didn't know what <laughs> they didn't know how to control me anymore. I was thirteen, That's I think. Amazing. 13, 14. thirteen years old. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and 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 let's then sort of move forward to the sort of challenges of mountain climbing, uh, yeah. because you know what you've done is something that a lot of people maybe think about but would never do. Like I, I've certainly thought, oh, wow, it would be nice to be on the top of Mount Everest, but I don't know if I'm actually equipped to, to to make that climb because it's i have no doubt that you could do anything you put your mind <laughs> i probably <to>. could but <laughs> yeah. I, I i you know you 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 it's one of the most treacherous mountains in in in, yeah. uh, in the world 
um, what were the sort of sort of mental hurdles you had to overcome in order to think you could do it? And then what were the, the challenges you faced in actually doing it and getting to the summit? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I wrote the book uh, around that. A Mountain uh, to Climb. Everybody should check it out. A Mountain to Climb, The Climate Crisis, A Summit Beyond Everest. Yeah. The, the, reason, the reason I actually wrote that book, because what happened on Everest uh, was life-changing and uh, for many reasons. And uh, uh, I, I thought that, it, it, first of all, it's an interesting read. And if I wove in everything that's happening with the environment, overfishing, climate, uh, that it would, it would actually be something that people could read at a leisurely pace, but learn a lot. And also gain a bit of hope because there's a lot of solutions to the problems mm. that we have. Uh, it, it, the the first hurdles I had to get by was getting permission from my wife. Yeah. of course. <laughs> uh, You're going to leave uh, me a widow? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. It, 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 I, I won't say it was easy, but once she saw how determined I was, and uh, and I framed it in a certain way. I first went to another mountain to really see if I could do it. I trained very intensively. Uh, and everything you did worked Kilimanjaro, out. Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua in yes. South America. Yes, I mean mainly Aconcagua was the was the big trial, and that was very difficult because I was arrogant. I was trained. I thought I can, you know, just walk skip up. the couple of days. I, well, I did walk up, but I thought I could walk up faster than anybody else, and mm. just arrived late because it was Christmas, and I didn't want to leave the family. Mm -hmm. So what I should have done in four days, I did in five days. I did in two to base camp, and of course, I got Sick. altitude sickness, yeah. and uh, that was my first lesson. Mm. Uh, and then the next one was. You know, bad weather coming down the mountain. Uh, the porters had to, you know, we ran down, but the porters carrying our stuff back down, uh, they they got stuck overnight on the mountain. And they had to use our stuff to actually survive. save themselves to survive. Yeah. You know, those were all a little close uh, and, and they gave me a taste of what it was like. So for me, um, the problem was arrogance uh, and self-confidence uh, because I'd done everything that could be done. I hired the best organizer. Uh, who had a perfect track record, and I trust him. I trust him with my life anywhere, Lucas Furtenbach. And then um, I pr I did all the preparation I needed to do, the diet. I had all this help. I talked to mountaineers. I even the, what made me most nervous was something. But you weren't a mountain climber. This wasn't. I'm something. not a mountain climber. No. I always made fun of people who climbed up mountains to walk back down. I mean, I understand climbing up a mountain to ski down, but I yeah. don't get walking up to walk down. Uh, but then once I decided that okay, what's going to be this shocking thing that I do that actually you know grabs attention for this cause uh, and I decided then of course I started learning about it and now I have a huge amount of respect for mountain climbers don't get me wrong um, but uh, I, I was as prepared as one can be essentially mm -hmm. so I had this overconfidence mm -hmm. that when I got there I would go up and come down easily oh boy is that not true yeah no. you know you need you need a lot of luck uh, obviously you need skill and experience but um, you need luck and mental, uh, you need to mentally be prepared because it's extremely, extremely difficult. And uh, the dangers are not, uh, you know, they're subjective, uh, they're, they're objective dangers. So meaning you have no control over them. The weather. Uh, the weather, a serac may f fall on you. I mean, at one instance, a gas canister uh, fell from uh, a higher camp and literally passed one meter in front of me. If that even hit your arm, uh, you're basically not coming back. And yeah. I didn't realize many things. You know, I, I had this impression that uh, as we had two Sherpas each, you know, very strong men, we had, you know, uh, we we probably had the best Sherpas on the mountain, the best organization on the mountain, but it was a very unfortunate day. You know, many people died. 11 climbers so when you were there. Alive. That morning uh, is the famous morning that was on the cover of the New York Times with a lineup on the south side from Nepal. Uh -huh. I was climbing the north side from uh -huh. Tibet. So there were less people, but it's more technical, colder. There were still a lot of people. And 11 climbers died, uh, unfortunately, on that, uh, on that day. But uh, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it changes, it changes you because you have to deal with people that are dying. You're on a single rope. You have to actually unclip and step over them and clip back in. And I had many difficult, uh, many, many difficult moments. I mean, near-death moments as well. Um, I don't know. Should I describe yeah, them? Or please, I, you, please. I mean, that, just the image you just said, I, I'm still digesting, which is okay. in order to climb up the mountain, you had to unhook from the rope, walk over a dead person and hook back in and keep going. Uh, yes, essentially. Uh, walking down, uh, especially. And it, it's worse. It's not a dead person, but a person that's dying. Uh, mm. So that's, And that's begging you for help. Mm. That's begging you, you for water, stop. for oxygen. You can't stop. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, you know... Uh, 
this is a difficult truth that most mountain climbers won't talk about, but essentially you're responsible for your own life on the mountain and, uh, uh, and nobody's going to help you. Uh, and you certainly shouldn't help somebody else because uh, that's going to cost you your life. And this, is, this, this becomes pretty clear to you when you're climbing. It's not selfishness, it's self-preservation. It's just yeah. fact. Um, for us, uh, what went wrong is the uh, basically during the climb, it took much longer than, uh, than expected because of the bottlenecks. And uh, when we got to the top, we were very late. So coming back down, uh, when the weather changed and we had severe gusts of wind, which actually blew off a lot of the oxygen stored on the way down, mm. and a lot of the Sherpas left, basically. So we were left to go down on our own without any guidance. And on the way up, you have something called a jumar, which gives you yeah. a point of reference. On the way down, you don't have a jumar. And uh, so you have to, if you fall, essentially, and you're immobilized, you're going to stay there. Mm. I, um, you know, I never understood the media so you're not reports. hooked into a rope on the way down? You, you are hooked in a rope, but you have to change ropes all the time. Oh. And if you fall, the rope doesn't arrest your fall. You just fall for the length of that rope wow. until the next point. And yeah, uh, um, yeah I, I mean, I never understood, you know, media reports that say, oh, this guy fell off the ledge on, you know, uh, at 8,300 meters or the mushroom rock at uh, Everest and there's a search going on for him. Nobody's searching for anybody. You know, if somebody falls there, they're, they're not coming back. It's that simple. Mm. Uh, and everybody knows that. Mm. But for some reason, you know, for weeks you hear that he's being searched for and this and that. Um, coming back on the third step, uh, I'd given my sunglasses to a friend who, who had an issue with his and I was wearing goggles. They fogged up. My regulator froze and I lost my footing. And I was, so I was holding on to the rope. It's about a 35, 40 meter cliff. Mm. and uh, holding on to it. And then, of course, huge exposure below that as well. So yeah, course, you're looking, yeah. you know, you're looking from, well, this is at the top of the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's at 8,700 meters or something yeah. like that. And uh, I lost my grip. And as I'm slipping with the gloves, I took out the regulator. Uh, and of course, without oxygen, you don't have much time anyway. Pins and needles in your brain start almost instantly. <clears throat> and I started slipping down. And I remember this intense pain in my belly mm. in my gut mm. and uh, uh, almost like i've gone to the bathroom on myself that mm. weird feeling but then suddenly i could hear people talking from 100 meters away i could you know i was looking i felt like i had the vision of a hawk uh, uh, and this insane amount of strength just came to me and i and i pulled myself together and I managed to actually come down, get a grip. And then uh, uh, one of our guides from further below saw, came, changed my regulator, got a new tank and basically saved my life. But mm -hmm. later, my friend Andrew Huberman, who I know Andrew, you know yeah. as well, uh, mentioned that we have a nerve once fired. This is the moment that you know saves a child from under a car by lifting it yeah. uh, as a mother. There's a, when that fires, you also get neuroplasticity uh, yeah. again and you can rewire your character. And I think all of those near-death experiences changed me completely. How did it change you? Well, it made me much more focused on this singular purpose of really using every platform and means I have to fight what's happening to the world. You know, we have children who are going to have children and we need to leave them a better world than we found. We're not going to end up leaving them a better world, unfortunately, but at least we need to leave them a world that they can live mm. in. And uh, uh, I started focusing much more on the people that I care about, uh, mm. my children especially. You know, in the past they would come I mean, I'm a busy CEO. They'd come and say, Dad, come, let's play. And I'd say, oh, let me finish the email. Let me finish my coffee. I'm busy now. Now I don't do that. I just drop everything and I say, yes, time's yours, you know. Yeah. And wow. uh, I think these are, uh, if, if I, it's been three years now, right? It's quite a while. Uh, so I have to remind myself because the world changes us. Uh, but I do believe that my brain got rewired on that mountain. And uh and we've progressed a lot. Look at the company. Uh, what what way that you get rewired in your brain? I think my character changed uh, in that uh, I started, you know, really uh, understanding and behaving. Easiest way to describe it, I think I went up a boy and came down a man. You know, yeah. I matured. Yeah. I, I, I understand what's important. And what's important is family and close friends and, and what matters, our legacy, right? As I told you, I want to be able to look my daughter in the eyes uh, when I'm 62 and say, hey, I did everything mm. I can. Yeah. And, and, and when, you, when you kind of now look at the way you run your business, the way you relate to your, your mission as a CEO, how did that change? Uh, well, 
accelerated this transformation. Uh, we've now become carbon neutral across our global manufacturing operations, which isn't easy. You know, we manufacture in South Africa, Pakistan, Bangladesh. These are places where there's no regulation. And right? they don't often care about that. And they don't they don't care about it at all. I mean, they care about other things. Uh, they, they're, um, um, they have a long way to go uh, until they're wealthy enough to, you know, right. care about that. But uh, so in places like that, we're, we're driving change. And, I, and, and it makes good business sense. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're growing very fast. So it's, it's actually paying off. And every, every study I see, the latest BCG study I saw, uh, indicates that 85% of consumers are now choosing, actively choosing products and services from companies that have been uh, leading this path. Yeah, 85%. And it's still low, but it's important. 10% are willing to pay more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that dynamic is going to continue shifting and regulation is going to come quite aggressively. So it's basically a winning strategy. And I think everybody sees it now. We just had a head start. Uh, staying ahead is going to be very difficult, by the way. Uh, but it's... You, you know, it's interesting what you say. So you're, you're sort of taking the lead on this and you've done the right thing and it's yeah. been sort of profitable for you and yes. the company. But I think many, many business leaders, I think, imagine that... Um, it's it's hard to make those choices and they don't see the return and that the prices that that are reflected in the marketplace are aren't fair because if if you do the right thing it costs more the other guy is actually creating all these downstream consequences that are we call externalities they're not actually externalities they're built into the they're problems yeah. that are built into the yeah. way we do yeah. things yeah. how how do we how do we get uh regulation and as i see i imagine this is not a, a friendly subject for you to talk about legislation or regulation globally to actually build into the price of the goods and services that we have the true cost of the, the goods and services in terms of their their full spectrum in the life cycle analysis yeah. of all the things that are impacted by them because just in terms of the food space that's because where i am you know the rockefeller foundation created a report called the true cost of food and found that it was basically three times the price you pay yeah. at the checkout counter in terms of its impact on climate, on health, on the economy, on social justice, on uh, mental health, on learning, on productivity. I mean, the, the, the consequences of doing things the way we do them are so broad, but they're not built into the price we pay at the checkout counter. Yeah. How do we, how do we create an equalization in the marketplace where you're not out there in the lead and then going to get penalized because you're, you're, you're doing the right thing, but it's actually actually yeah. not good for the company's um, bottom line first of all spot on i mean this is the problem right we need to we need to put the price of carbon emissions into the products and services that we use it's full stop i was not on just the, carbon but everything right yeah pollution degradation uh, yeah, uh, uh, health uh, exactly everything you know. but carbon we can we can actually pinpoint now that's why i, I say carbon it's low-hanging fruit again yeah. i was on the um, world bank high commission for carbon pricing years ago and i saw that's another accelerator in my in my own development by the way when i started seeing unadulterated data from scientists mm. like the ipcc report and um, uh, the only way forward is basically putting a price on carbon and that price gets absorbed by the goods and services europe is pretty good at regulating uh, and by the way i'm very much for regulation i think it's the quickest uh, solution global regulation is difficult but europe has done a great job europe really now has uh, mandatory uh, carbon offsets uh, for businesses. They're forcefully, they're going to implement a carbon tax, a carbon border tax. So if you're importing from countries which actually don't mitigate the carbon, you will have to pay a tax. Like China. <laughs> like China. But this is a great, this is a great way to do it. The only problem is Europe is tiny. Yeah. Europe is 8% of emissions. So Europe can only be a great example. It will take, businesses need to do this. It's always the case. You know, businesses need to lead and then governments will follow. Uh, I, I highlighted Europe because I, you know, the Green Deal, as they say, I call it a good deal. You know, it, it really is a good deal. But will the world follow quickly? I have my doubts. So as businesses, rather than wait, you need to push the envelope yourself. Also, look at it this way. Um, as a business today, we're sustainable. You know, we're doing well. We're making money. Uh, we're growing. But the risk to our future is that I will have to I will have to take on the cost of those carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And those carbon emissions, everyone talks about, I'll get a bit technical now, scope one and two emissions. No yeah. one talks about scope three emissions, yeah, which, explain is, that. which is what scope three emissions is what um, uh, consumers, when they're using your product, actually emit uh, carbon. Uh, so, And that's a huge percentage of the problem is actually that in the world. 
um, you need to make commitments as businesses to actually cut those today because the cost of that in the future when there is regulation is going to be so high, your business, you won't be able to manage your business. Today, it costs you carbon credit, maybe 80 in Europe, 80, 90 dollars, let's say. Um, there's no saying that won't be $2,000 in, in five years, 10 years, or maybe even $10,000. Nobody knows. Or maybe 200. But the important thing to factor is that you need to take measures now to A, cut the carbon emissions so that you don't have that cost, and B, create credits yourself by doing things like recycling and using recycled materials um, and store it on your balance sheet. So you're actually hedging the future of the business. Yeah. But carbon offsets are problematic in a sense because Very. you're, I mean, it's like, well, I can, you know, be an, an, an oil company that's creating a lot more fossil fuel problems and natural gas company producing tons of methane from fracking that's three times the amount of methane that cows produce around the world. Yeah. And, and I can then buy a carbon credit to offset the negative impact I'm making. There's something that, about it that seems a little bit disingenuous. What do you, yeah. how do you think about that? I think the first the first goal has to be cutting the carbon emissions mm. uh, everywhere you possibly can. Uh, by next year, uh, Archedic will have 50 megawatts of solar power on all its roofs. I mean, we're not a power company. That's like power company scale, 50 megawatts of yeah. power. Why? Because we want to cut the emissions at the source. So we will use clean power. We'll make the power ourselves. and uh, Which will end up saving you money? Yes, it does. Payback mm. is quite quick. I have to say the business sense also helps. Mm. Uh, but... Um, you need to first cut all emissions. Then uh, I agree that uh, buying carbon credits is a very shady market at the moment, but it's cleaning up. Article 6 at, at, at uh, COP26, again, was one of the big achievements where double counting, you know, the infrastructure is coming in uh, to where actually capital will flow to places like rainforests, like mangrove forests, mm. um, you know, patches of ocean mm. uh, to preserve kelp, uh, coral, that kind of thing will start happening because of the capital flowing. And in the book, I interview many people, uh, many scientists uh, who are fighting really hard uh, to preserve what we have, but somehow capital is not flowing to them correctly. And I think the, the system coming into place now, maybe not today, but in five, 10 years, will be an efficient way of, of rechanneling capital. Meaning that, that, that by actually pricing in carbon into the yes. marketplace, it will sort of yes. reshuffle the deck and allow... Yes, it'll be Companies mandatory carbon Companies to do the right markets. thing and exactly. incentivize the right choices. And yes. the same thing in healthcare. You know, we, we, we know that the solutions for most chronic disease, which is better food, and yet mm. we have a food system that is broken is broken and is mm. driving chronic disease that we, we don't deal with through proper incentives, right? We know, for example, the, the cure for diabetes is eating differently, mm. and yet we don't pay for food as part of healthcare, right? Yeah. The joke, yeah. Wendell Berry says, you know, we have a healthcare system that pays no attention to food and a food system that pays no attention to health. Yeah. And it's a similar thing <laughs> in, in the business world. So so what was it like being in Mount Everest and seeing the glaciers melt? I just came back from Antarctica and I haven't talked about it a lot, but it was it was really striking to see the impact when we were there. We we, we had well, I, days I, there I, that were over I saw 50. a picture of you, with, so it, it, it kind of been too cold. Uh, no, no, it was like 50 degrees above Normal temperatures there. Crazy, yeah. There was a, a calving event of a glacier that you know was reported in the New York Times. It was so massive, and we witnessed it. And it it was really disturbing to see in real time the impacts of climate and what's happening, and to see the impacts on the populations of uh, mammals there. And 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 it was sort of shook me up a little bit. How how did that impact you and change what you think about? Well, on on Everest, I mean, you see, well, first of all, you don't see the glaciers, right? And then you see the the line of where they used to be on the rock, and then you see where they are today, mm -hmm. and it's like it's 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 like a skyscraper, right? The difference. Yeah. And um, and that's not coming back. And once you realize that, um uh, you start worrying about what can we save, really? We've lost about 68% since 1970s of all of all wildlife mm -hmm. uh, on earth, the biomass. And uh, we need to be fighting for what we can preserve. And on, on, when I was on the way down from the summit and this gust happened, I remember a moment when I was looking out and, and you have the curvature of, you can see the curvature of the earth and you can literally mm. see the blue of space. It's a different blue. Mm. And I felt so stupid. I was like, who am I to think I can challenge nature? And mm. what, like, what is this? How, I mean, or us humans, like we're, we're unimportant, less important than a speck of dust. Yeah. Nature will heal itself. It will go on its own cycle, but we will not. I yeah. mean, and I mean, you know this better than I do, but even yeast, take the most simple 
uh, organism with two-celled creature, mm. its instinct it's, is to adopt to survive, right? I mean, they, they change, they adapt to the temperature, the atmosphere, the food source, whatever, very quickly because mm. they want to survive. What's wrong with us humans that we, we're facing this catastrophe and we're not rea reacting to it? It's the strangest thing. And we're supposed to be the most complex, intelligent beings anywhere, if you ask some people. Uh, so this is a bit that I didn't understand. And, and on Everest, that really struck me, that how small and insignificant I was and as a species we were. Mm. And how dare we think that we can challenge nature and win. Yeah, like that, that, that yeah we haven't really me. come into right relationship with nature. Yeah. We've sort of divorced ourselves and yeah. disconnected ourselves yeah. in ways that uh, make us think we're invincible. But yeah. you know, I remember when I was in college, I, I was uh, at a talk from this guy named John Trudell, who was the head of the American Indian Movement at the time. And... And all of us young, you know, idealistic college students were like, well, what about the earth? The earth is getting damaged. This was back in the 70s when it was <laughs> even bad. I don't even think they had a word for climate change yet. And and we were just talking about pollution. And and he's like, look, he says, the earth will be fine. It's humans we have to worry about. And I, I think yeah. we're, we're at that existential moment where we might not survive as a species. And yet the ingenuity and creativity yeah. gives me a lot of hope. So are you, are you hopeful? Or are I'm you, hopeful. Yeah. I'm very hopeful, right? That's, that's, um, tell me why and tell us all why, because yeah, I think I'll a lot of why. people I'll tell you have why. climate yeah. depression. <laughs> yeah. Well, climate depression is a real thing. Uh, I've, I've been, uh, <clears throat> meeting a lot of young climate activists and I understand why now, because, uh, it's, it's our, it's a problem we've created, let's say middle-aged men, mm. And, uh, and women, but mostly men. Unfortunately, that's the way the world works and that's how business and governments have been run. And, uh, and you have these young people whose future is being destroyed by this, but they're not part of the conversation. Mm. They're not at the table. Mm. They're not at, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're labeled as climate activists and sometimes people listen to them, but they're not part of the solution and, yeah. I, and they're angry yeah. and I understand why. I'm hopeful because A, business, I see business taking interest as a, as a way uh, to differentiate and create profit. Mm. And, and in our capitalist system, that's the single biggest driver of change. Mm -hmm. And I also know that if businesses go, governments follow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that, yeah. that really uh, brings a lot of uh, hope, uh, to me at least, because I now see action. In the past, everybody would talk, everybody would put on paper what they need to, but delay action. Now I actually really see action almost everywhere. I mean, besides you, what, what companies are, are making strides to actually solve this in a real way? Not, not, not just in a greenwashing way, but in a material way. Uh, so many, like Schneider Electric is one. They make electric motors. Uh, mm. They've done a phenomenal job. Uh, uh, I, there's even, uh, you know, uh, companies which make paper uh, that are, for example, for everybody it's different, by the way, right? They, they are growing trees to, to harvest, but at the same time now they've realized that they're, they're actually growing regenerative forests too. Because, mm. you know, so if you multiply that, it actually starts adding up. And uh, there, there are many, many businesses. Yeah. I mean, naming a few now would be a little unfair. Yeah, no, I, I think it's starting to happen. I mean, I mean, obviously in the space that I'm in, which is food, and I, I think, you know, you, you've come to very similar conclusions that I have from a different perspective, which is that we, we, we have to solve this at scale we have to do this through business innovation. We have to yeah. do this through policy change. And yeah. that's why I created yeah. the Food Fix so, campaign. And and I see businesses in the food space starting to change. Uh, and yeah. a couple of friends of mine are on the sustainability board of Nestle, which you know kind of was the big ogre in the food space. It's the biggest food company. And they had a bad reputation for you know infant formula you know, propagation in Africa, which mm. they couldn't afford and they watered it down and the babies were all malnourished. It was like a whole thing in the 70s. Ooh. I don't know if you know about that. It was bad. Yeah. But they've kind of, they, they kind of have a different CEO now who's very interested in this space and is, has committed 80% of its supply chain to be regenerative agriculture by 2030. Now, I don't know if they can Amazing. achieve that, but that, that really struck me as a, a remarkable stand. Because mm. yeah. I, I had a conversation with the president of Nestle in America a number of years ago. And I said, he says, I know this is necessary, but we can't do it because we can't get mm. the supply chain to feed to, our monster. To adapt, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, uh, change is absolutely necessary, but scale is the key. Uh, yeah, key, so how do we get uh, scale? Because people feel powerless. You know, I think yeah. a lot of people listen to these stories and they feel, God, you know, okay, Mark Hyman, you can do this. And, you know, yeah. Khan, you, you've got a, you're a CEO of a $9 billion company. You can make an impact, but I'm just, you know, Joe or Sally or whoever. Mm -hmm. And I, what can I do? Like, I, yeah. how can I make a difference? Okay, well, before I get to that, I want to talk about scale just briefly. One, yeah. Just to give one example of why it's important. 
Patagonia, we all love. I really enjoy, you know, mountain stuff. But it's it, and they do the great thing, and you know, it's good marketing for them as well. It works, but it's small. Small, right? yeah. Uh, then you take what what we do, fifty million appliances a year. You take the cuts we're promising in emissions by two thousand thirty, eleven and a half million tons. Uh, that's the equivalent to the country of Hungary a year. Yeah. So you see what I mean? And you're just you, one company. One company. So you you know you get. You get enough companies uh, behind this at scale, uh, the tide is going to turn. But that in itself is not enough. So it, coming back to the individual, what we can do, we really need to make our... Every day we make a thousand choices, millions of... Th thousands of choices even sometimes. We need to make sure we're thinking about the impact we have every choice we make. The clothes we wear, the food we eat. I mean, you know better than I do. Um, the appliances we buy. We need to electrify everything. We need to eat... Less meat for sure, because of or course, less less. Well, we need need no feedlot meat and more no regenerative meat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to grow that much regenerative meat for the world is also a little bit difficult. I think yeah. problematic. The the whole food thing is uh, is too complex to get my head around. But yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that one. That's my <laughs> that's my area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, it's pretty clear we have to move away from fossil fuels and uh, and consumers need to drive that. So you feel hopeful looking at the landscape am, of business, policymakers, because you deal with government leaders, you deal yeah. with policymakers. Are they thinking about this the right way? Are they just, because it yeah. seems like, you know, in America it's the worst because, you know, you've got Congress that turns over every two years. And so all they're thinking about is the next election. And, yeah. you know, there's no sort of longevity of thinking. It's mm. the next quarter. It's the next election. And it just creates all this short-sighted set of incentives, which, which yeah. actually subvert what we all need to do and we all know we need to do to take care of ourselves and the planet. Yeah, America, uh, yeah, tends to reverse its policies every couple of years, which is sad. Uh, I am hopeful because I, I do see traction in governments. I do see traction in businesses. Is it fast enough? Uh, not really. You know, when I, a couple of years ago, I was saying there's 416 uh, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. Today, it's 421. Now, for us to reach our goals, that should have been much lower. We're supposed to you know, we're, we're actually increasing still. Yeah. And uh, uh, a lot needs to happen, but I'm a true believer in technology as well. And technology has to be a part of the solution here. And it is, you know, capital is flowing that direction. Uh, many believe the next 100 unicorns are going to come or decacorns, uh, you know, $10 billion plus valuation startups are going to come from the climate space. Mm -hmm. I believe that. And uh, in the book, I interviewed a lot of people who are working on technologies around that carbon capture, you know, mass planting of trees. Uh, these are all solutions that we can do today. And I, and I really believe that they're going to start happening, especially as we start feeling the impact of the, of the destruction more. I think we're really going to speed up um, uh, the solutions. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think, you know, obviously I pay attention, you pay attention, but, and people hear it in the news and they hear the weather and they hear, see the refugee crises and they hear the food destabilization around the world. And they see all these consequences, but it, I think it's very scary for people. And I feel people feel disempowered around it and yeah. discouraged. And, and I think you mentioned a number of things that people can do individually, but do you think the individual changes are going to make that much of a difference? I, I really do. As opposed to businesses and governments making the real change they need to make. Businesses and governments have the responsibility, but so do we as individuals. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's going to take collective effort to uh, to push the governments as well. You know, as people are more aware of what's happening, uh, the reactions will be quite strong. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and yes, I I do believe I do believe it's going to happen. It has to happen, right? It does. It absolutely does. I mean, I think um, it's very inspiring for me to listen to you talk about solutions that are in the business space because they've been the biggest part of the problem. Yeah. But yeah. they also can be the biggest part of the solution. Yeah. And and you're an example of how that actually can happen in an industry which probably most people don't think about <laughs> as a climate-related yeah. industry. Yeah. But every industry is in some degree yeah. a climate-related industry and has the potential through the kind of visionary thinking you have and the leadership you have and the technology development you have to actually solve this problem. I mean, every every CEO or business leader doesn't have to climb Everest, right? That was no, the, <laughs> you did that for them. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, what has to happen is we have to evolve our consciousness and really be, you know, be careful about our choices. Mm. Uh, and 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 I and I believe it's happening. I see it everywhere, Mark. I mean, uh, you must see it everywhere. Like people are so much more focused now and aware yeah. of their health and what they're eating and yeah. and how they want to live their lives and how the medical system works. You know. 
all of that kind of awareness is also happening with, you know, what you put into your body, uh, if it's poisoning you, you know, what you're putting into the air and the water is also poisoning you. Yeah. And uh, people are becoming more aware of this. Yeah, I think it's exciting. And so yeah. your your book is really a, a beautiful story of both your own personal journey up Mount Everest, but also your personal journey to understand how to really impact the climate crisis and actually make a difference for people in their thinking, in their actions, and and the stories that are in there, the, the the innovations that are happening, the kinds of thinking that's happening in governments, the 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 changes in the thinking of CEOs around the world, the consumer shifts. It, it's inspiring. It's it's a little bit slow for me. It's not fast enough, obviously, for you. But but I I think. This book is is a great read, and everybody should check it out. Uh, Mountain to climb the climate crisis: a summit beyond Everest. Uh, it's it's a beautiful story. Uh, thank God you did it, so I didn't have to. <laughs> uh, and 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 any last words on on how we might uh, you know reimagine a future together? Well, I mean, thank you, Mark, for having me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I think we all collectively need to just be aware of the impact we have on Mother Earth, and we need to understand that we are responsible for what happens tomorrow. Hmm. If we shoulder that responsibility and we really take it seriously that we have children, even if you don't have children, you know, that we actually try and preserve this beautiful, incredible planet that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, some people want to go to Mars. I mean, why would you want to go to Mars? It's a dead planet. And, uh, you know, so I heard some people say, if you wait here long enough, that might happen. That's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. This is just probably the biggest miracle that's ever existed and it's called nature and mm. we need to we need to just get into harmony with it and learn how to live uh, well and preserve uh, what we have that's quite a, that's, that's quite a beautiful vision and i just want to share a little story i heard the other night because we're here in bodrum in turkey mm-hmm. we're recording this podcast and right literally out the window we can see off the coast of mm-hmm. the mediterranean sea you know dozens of fish farms yeah that are selling food to Whole Foods as sustainably farmed fish. But yeah. under the hood, it's not really that way. In fact, every fish is shot full of antibiotics. There's maybe only 60 meters of depth in the ocean and yeah. it takes up about two-thirds of that to farm these fish. There's millions of fish crowded in small areas. It's polluting the oceans. Uh, and it's it's just bad news in terms of the quality of the fish, the the impact on the environment. And um, as a solution, there are innovative ways to reimagine how we do things. Uh, one of them was this thing called the fish bank, which I'd never heard about, which is mm. the idea that uh, our friend Barack shared about, which was he brought the president of Turkey here to, to actually show him this problem. And he, and he said that they, they solved the, this problem by, by leaving... Um, fish populations alone for long enough where literally every year the fish population will double until it starts to create an overflow of fish that if you go outside this protected area, the fish bank literally will produce dividends and these fish will get out Mm -hmm. of their protected area and create enough fish for ongoing harvesting without depleting the fish supply. So there's all sorts of simple ideas like this that all across all business sectors and all areas of society and, and human endeavor that we can actually start to lean into to solve these problems. And it's really the model that my friend Paul Hawken talks about that we had him on the podcast talk about, which is regeneration. Mm-hmm. How can we create a regenerative model of of living, of business, of innovation, of technology? And and I think that's where we're going. Uh, not 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 fast enough, but I think you, you're leading the way and uh, I'd follow you up any mountain, Hakan. So uh, <laughs> thanks thank for you, being Mark. on the podcast and thank you all for listening. And if you were inspired by what you heard here, please share this with your friends and family on social media. Subscribe wherever your podcast. Leave a comment about how you maybe are thinking about this and creating solutions and getting out of climate depression because I think that's really what we need to do. We need to get out of paralysis and into action. And that's really what you've done at scale. And I, I'm really honored to know you and to be part of this conversation with you. So thank you so much. And for all of you uh, listening, we'll see you next week on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I want to tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. 
It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger, longer. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.